We are on the verge of a collapse. Nobody can predict when this is something. Joining us to discuss geopolitics and investment opportunities is Bob Moriarty, the founder of 321Gold and 321Energy.com. Mr. Moriarty, welcome to the show, sir. Uh, it's always a pleasure. I just wish we had something interesting going on in the world to talk about. <laughs> well, we certainly do, but I want to begin today's show in a different direction. Bob, you have an important update for avid readers that uh, enjoy books with a clear and concise message, and I'm referring to two of your books entitled Nobody Knows Anything and Basic Investing in Resource Stocks. Mr. Moriarty, what type of person would benefit from reading your books? Well, strangely enough, and I, I want to blame you for this. I'm not going to take credit <laughs> for it. Uh, you, you know, when the books first came out, you said, Bob, I keep going back and rereading the books, and it's really handy. And uh, you bugged me to do a hardback. At the time, Amazon didn't have the ability to do that, but Amazon now has the ability to do it. These books were deliberately made for people who have already bought the books. And I've sold several thousand, I, I don't know the number, it's like 10,000 total uh, of these books. But for people who go back and reread or go to sections of the book, they should buy the hardback because you can buy the paperback for a couple of bucks. And, and one of the hardbacks, let me think of this one, it's in color, and I think it's 25 bucks, but uh, I, I think it's well worth it. Uh, this is just a sample version. It's bigger, and it's easier to read, and this is the uh, basic investing in, in resource stocks. And same thing. These two books, the hardbacks, are deliberately aimed at people who want to go back and reread it. Now, should someone be interested in resources or interested in the economy now, uh, certainly they can feel free. You can buy the books on Kindle for 99 cents. So everybody can afford it. But if you'd like a permanent copy, you can get the hardback. And I think that's a good deal. And quite bluntly, it's all your fault. <laughs> I will gladly, gladly take the blame. Let me ask you this for someone who hasn't read the, had an opportunity at least to read the books. What is the main feedback that you receive from readers? Strangely enough, there are little things like when to sell that I've never heard anybody else talk about that I think it's so simple. And, and I realize I, I've been making mistakes for really 15, 20 years. You have to treat resource stocks uh, like they're baseball trading cards, and you have to trade the damn things. I went through about 30 stocks once, and I looked at the yearly high and the yearly low, and the average stock moves 290%. Now, if your objective is to make a profit, okay, if you got 25 or 50 percent or 100 percent a year, that would be extraordinary. And everybody's got the opportunity to do it. But what they do is they buy a stock like Novo that was 45 cents when I recommended it. 
and said it was going to be a 10 bagger. They ride it to nine bucks a share. They don't sell when it's gone up 20 folds. And then it comes back to 35 cents, and they write me and tell me what an idiot I am. Well, let me tell you something. <laughs> I sold my shares. I'm in this to make money. I'm not in this to prove point. You have to buy and sell the shares. You can't marry them. You want to marry them, you need to own Barrick or Newmont or something like that. You know, and just for the record, ladies and gentlemen, I do not benefit financially from the sale of these books, but I've definitely benefited financially time and time again from reading and most importantly, the application. And I can honestly say that my family will benefit for generations from the principles, Bob, that you've outlined in these books. I encourage everyone to grab a copy. Now, we've got a lot of ground to cover here. Let's begin in okay. Ukraine. It's been almost eight years since the war in Ukraine began. And a lot of innocent lives have been lost and or permanently had their lives altered for the worse. Before we delve deeper into the war, sir, would you be so kind to remind us who are the winners and who are the losers when it comes to war? Everybody loses. The only question is how much you lose. And strange enough, the economic crash that we're going to go through very soon maybe we're in right now i i think we're in right now everybody loses something so while ukraine has lost uh four hundred thousand killed and wounded okay among their soldiers uh the russians have lost 40 or fifty thousand among their soldiers so uh, it war it's not a soccer match it's not a baseball game there's not one winner and one loser everybody loses something now i am against war but i'm also a warrior this was a war that russia was forced into fighting and quite bluntly it's destroying ukraine it's going to end up destroying nato and the u.s and the euro and the u.s dollar it, it's catastrophic, and, and I have sent you some information. It's really a battle between the debt-based system of the West and a resource-based system of the BRICS. India, Brazil, Mexico, uh, Iran, uh, China, Arabia, China, Russia have all realized they're not getting what they should be getting for their commodities because the banking system and the debt-based system of the West is, is skimming all the money off the top. It literally is the most important financial battle in 500 years, but uh, NATO and the United States have chosen to use Ukraine as a proxy. Frankly, if you pay any attention to the news, Ukraine's getting absolutely demolished. And it should have never taken place. And I was actually writing, not a year ago, I was writing 14 months ago, saying all the U.S. and NATO had to do was listen to Putin, and Putin had a perfectly reasonable solution. In 1962, the Soviet Union chose to put nuclear-armed missiles in Cuba. And John F. Kennedy said, hey guys, that's out. You're not going to do that. And there was a blockade. We came very close to World War III, and the Russians removed their missiles. What, what the United States never bothered telling anybody is the United States had 
put nuclear armed missiles in Turkey, and Russia had been demanding for months that the United States remove them. And that's never told in the history books. That was a victory for the world, but it was not a victory for either the Soviet Union or the United States. It was a victory for everybody. So you believe, from a macro perspective, this is a war based on East versus West regarding a monetary system. Do I have that correct? It's pretty much turned into a war between East and West, but it's just as much a war between West and South. Explain that for us, West and South. Well, uh, Brazil is one of the most important economic countries in the world. The countries in South America that, that are constantly going through hyperinflation, they need a resource-based system and they need to get more money for their assets. Africa has always been a disaster, but it's been a disaster because it was a colony for France and Belgium and the United States and and the UK, and, and they've broken away from that now. A year ago, we had you on the program, and you conveyed how Ukraine could end the war immediately. Would you please remind us about what you said? Well, here's the key. Zelensky ran for president in 2019. He was a television comedian whose only real skill was playing the piano with its penis. But uh, (laughs) he ran for president on the basis that he was going to have peace in Donbass and they were going to stop attacking Donbass. The Nazis, and these are very real Nazis, with, with lines going right back to 1943 and 1944, 1945. The Nazis told them, if you have peace in Donbass with Russia, we're going to kill you. The Ukraine lied in Minsk too. France lied in Minsk too. Germany lied in Minsk too. The United States lied 30 years ago when they said they wouldn't move NATO an inch to the east. And frankly, everything that's going on from the American NATO side is a lie. Let me raise an interesting question. Guys always hate this when I put you on the spot, but you have military connections. Uh, who, who sunk the, the pipeline? I have a feeling it's not going to be Putin. That's <laughs> going to say it's nope. going to be the I I think his own pipeline. Give me a break. <laughs> but here's what's funny, and you know this is true. The United States is pulling the strings here. Okay, Europe, including Norway and Poland, may be the sock puppets, but it's the United States pulling the strings. And and there was no question right from the beginning who had threatened to do it, and as both Victoria Newland and, and Biden, and said, we're going to make sure it stops. And then they turned around and did it. When I was in Vietnam, we used to work with SOG teams. Uh, it was called the Special Operations Group. It was a bunch of CIA-sponsored uh, Special Forces troops, and they would go across the fence into Laos. And, of course, we weren't supposed to be in Laos, but... They would go over a Swedish case, some machine guns, and Israeli uh, packs and, and French uh, utilities and British boots under the theory that if they get into a firefight and somebody gets killed and the North Vietnamese check the body, they won't have any clue as to where it came from. Really? Like the North Vietnamese had no idea of who was attacking them? 
So the really <laughs> funny thing is the North Vietnamese knew who it was, South Vietnamese knew who it was, Laotian civilians knew who it was, the American uh, military knew who it was, and the only people who didn't know who it was was the American public who was paying for it. But same thing with the pipeline. It was an act of terror. It was illegal, according to international law. And actually, the U.S. military screwed it up. There were four pipes, and they only destroyed three, So, which is very typical. They got the same people who did such a brilliant job in Afghanistan and said, hey, we need to take out these four pipes. And then after the fact, they said, well, three is almost as good as four. I want to go back to something here. You referenced the Nazis, and I've heard this many times with the mainstream media, but they never expand on it. What is their interest in the Dunbass region? Strange enough, and that's a really good question, okay? Now, I call them Nazis. A lot of people call them Nazis, or neo-Nazis. They're not neo-Nazis. They're not fake Nazis. They're not guys acting like Nazis. They're Nazi Nazis. During World War II, the biggest war crimes and the worst atrocities in the entire war in Europe were committed in Ukraine by the Nazis. But it wasn't the German Nazis, it was the Ukrainian Nazis. And they killed, uh, uh, the numbers vary a lot, I can't tell you what the accurate numbers are, but they killed about 30,000 Jews and about 30,000 Poles and, and 100,000 or so Russians. The Ukrainians since then have been teaching their children to hate Russians. And even though Donbass is, is virtually exclusively Russian, the Ukrainians in the West hate the Russians, so they were quite happy. They've been shelling Donbass for six years now and killed fourteen or 15,000 people, and you never hear a word about it in the mainstream media. They're still attacking civilian targets. They've committed so many atrocities, absolutely sickening. They are monsters. They need to be put to sleep. They're just doing evil, evil things. And to the extent that I think that Putin was forced into the war, and sometimes you have to fight. Now, I'll, I'll ask you a trick question of the day. Am I a warrior or am I a pacifist? Ooh, that's a tough one there. Well, I'm going to say you're a warrior because you did reference your warrior. And I know I, you're... <laughs> I am absolutely a warrior. I would pick up, pick up weapons to defend my country tomorrow if it would help. I'm not a pacifist, even though I hate war. I hate war because I've been to war. And anybody who's really been in combat hates war. It's ugly. Okay, it brings out the worst in people, not the best. The, the bizarre thing is, Donbass voted in 2014 to separate from the illegal government in Kiev that had taken power via an illegal coup d'etat paid for by the United States, Victoria Newland, John McCain, $5 billion, because they wanted to destroy Russia. So Donbass voted to be independent. They wanted to join Russia uh, legally back then, and Putin said, no, we don't want to do that. So there's been a war going on since then, and there was a peace agreement in 2016 that the Germans, the French, and the Ukrainians, and the Americans all lied about. This this is so bizarre. When they write the the record of this war, people are going to look at it and say, how could they have been so stupid? Ukraine could end the war 
tomorrow. All I'd have to say is, okay, Russia, you keep the land that you're sitting on right now. We're not going to screw with you anymore. We're not going to join NATO. And, and what nobody realizes, and, and the media are, is so corrupt. E everything they talk about is a lie. From a practical point of view, the Russians have destroyed Ukraine economically. There's no power. There's no water. Most of the Ukrainians have left. There are an enormous drain on the EU, and the EU starting to wake up to the fact, hey, wait a minute, we thought we were doing the U.S. favor, and actually the U.S. screwed us royally. And the fact is, the only country getting a real benefit from it is the United States. And he Blinken came out and said that blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline was a tremendous opportunity for the United States because it forced Europe into paying six to eight times as much for uh, U.S. natural gas as what they were paying for from Russia. If you think about it, and that's very important, and all of the people out there saying, oh, Moriarty is an idiot and he's owned by Putin and he's a prostitute, all of which is bullshit, it's ask yourself, what did Russia do to Europe that would justify Europe attacking Russia? And the answer is they were a good neighbor and they were selling commodities to Europe cheap. And the economy of Europe was based on these cheap commodities. And the total craziness of the sanctions is it's destroyed Europe. There are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of businesses in Europe that have gone belly up because of the cost of the sanctions. I've done very well, comfortably, financially. Yet when I walk into a store now, even a grocery store, and I look at the prices, I just go, Jesus, I mean, how, did, how, did, how did it get so expensive? And I can afford it. There was an estimate from the EU that because of the cost of energy this winter, depending on the temperature, somewhere between 30,000 and 300,000 citizens of the EU would die. They would freeze. And unfortunately, they couldn't come up with the number for the number of people who would starve to death because the choice is either pay for energy or pay for food. This has been a total disaster for Europe, and with the exception of pretty much Croatia and Hungary and maybe Italy, European leadership has just totally dropped them all. They're a bunch of blithering idiots. I want to go back to something you referenced earlier, which is debt-based economies. You know, when you look at the U.S., it is a debt-based economy. The question I have, and I think all of us have, is, why are U.S. taxpayers bailing out Ukraine financially and militarily? And what benefit is it to us? Well, they're doing it because they're stupid. <laughs> what benefit is to it? Uh, the, the amount of money that it's cost every American taxpayer is in hundreds of dollars. And when you added up $100 million, would put a lot of kids through school and pay for a lot of mortgages. It, it's criminal. There is no benefit whatsoever. Now, one issue I had with the guys I served with in Vietnam, and that's true this day, lots of people said, you know, it was the news media that caused the United States to lose the war. We should have kept fighting. And I, I ask him the same question. Okay, give me the scenario in which we win. What would the United States have to do to actually clearly 
win the war in, in Vietnam. And they always look at you with this deer in the headlights look because the answer is nothing. There is nothing we could have done. It was not a winnable war. Likewise, in Ukraine, Ukraine has already been defeated. Okay, what could we possibly do to Russia? And I'll tell you how stupid it is. We have put in the same bed Iran, North Korea, China, Russia, Brazil, and India. And the United States is talking about attacking Russia and China at the same time. And if we couldn't beat uh, a bunch of goat herders in Afghanistan, how are we going to take up <laughs> China and Russia? And I'll, I'll be candid. And I was a fighter pilot. And I was an observation pilot. Had a ton of time in combat. Somebody came to me and said, okay, Bob, you're in charge of, of the war with China, what do you want us to do? And I said, well, go down and buy a bunch of sheets, get a bunch of long bamboo poles, oh. and we'll surrender. Okay, there is no scenario in which the United States is going to defeat China, okay? Now, if this is because China is out competing us economically, why don't we learn to compete? Why didn't we send our manufacturing to China so the banks and the, the industrialists could make money, and the average wages in the United States have been going down since 1980. China had nothing to do with it. That was stupidity on the part of the United States. We need some real leadership, quite bluntly. Uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, or, and, and McCarthy for that point, uh, these people are not leaders. Oh, you said so much here. I want to go back to the deployment of resources what type of impact will this have on readiness for our service members in regards to their training and proficiency if we're sending equipment that takes years to to uh, requisition again? Because they can't use it for training. Uh, it's actually meaningless because we've already destroyed the military. When we start requiring a Marine Corps officer candidates to walk in high heels, and I'm talking about male officers walk in high heels for a day, see what it's like. Uh, when you honor people because they're homosexual or you honor people because they're transgender, what we're doing is we're catering to the 1% which is transgender and 3% that's homosexual and the 99% and the 97% are being totally ignored. We've destroyed the military. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in the Marine Corps, going back to the 60s, because this is what I know best, the Marine Corps got involved in 1965. I was actually supposed to be in the first grunt unit that got shipped to Da Nang, I think, in uh, April of 1965. In April of 1965, I was on my way to Pensacola to go through flight training. The same guys who had been there in 1965 and 1966 were being sent back there in 1968 and 1969. To a man, they said, look, this is a really stupid war. We're not accomplishing anything whatsoever. We're away from home. So I'm going to get out of the Marine Corps. I'm going to give up and go to work for the airlines. Okay, and that's exactly what they did. But the guys in, in Afghanistan and Iraq have had much longer deployments and they've had to do it again and again and again. And I'm going to tell you, you know people mm -hmm. who have been on three or four deployments. Now, 
quite bluntly, no marriage can survive that. So what we've done to our military is absolutely criminal, and now they haven't got any weapons to fight with anyway. But the fact of the matter is, I, I think we've started 251 conflicts since the end of World War II. We need to do the same thing that Germany and France and the UK have done, is just declare victory and go home. Do you have any idea of how many people there are in the British Army? It's going to surprise you. I think it's very low. 72,000. Now, have you ever participated in a Boy Scout Jamboree or wanted to go to a Girl Scout Jamboree? I haven't, but I'm assuming that number's fairly close. I'm certain that if 72,000 people showed up for a Boy Scout Jamboree, they'd shut it down for it being so poorly done. I, I mean, you could fit 72,000 people in every uh, football stadium in the United States. So, you know, the, the U.K. doesn't even have a fighting force. And some of the stuff where the Germans are talking about sending dozen tanks, you know, that would take two days for the Russians to blow them up. This is, we're, we're never, never land, and we're being lied to about everything. And we're going to pay a big price for it. I mean, it's no question whatsoever. The United States is an empire in a state of decline, and it's going to become obvious to everybody really soon. When Americans can't afford eggs? Are you kidding? I never heard anything like that. But I'll give you a number that everybody needs to think about. For 18 of the last 20 centuries, India and China were the leading economic powers on Earth. Now, what makes the United States so unusual that, that we're going to stop these people? for being economic powers? And the answer is nothing. They're going to do it with or without help of the U.S. You have said so much right here. I want to go back and just, I'm, I'm probably speaking for a lot of uh, members in the military. Thank you for sharing what you've stated in reference to the wokeism and lack of leadership. Uh, you're probably getting a round of applause. right No, they're probably standing at attention right now thanking you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a number that scare the shit out of you. And I'm serious about this. Okay. In World War II, there were three capital ships for every admiral. There are now three admirals for every capital ship. Now, at the time of Desert Storm, there, there were seven four-star generals. How, how many do you think there are now? I believe that number is much higher. Forty. We are so top-heavy, it's absolutely absurd. When you've got 40 four-star generals trying to make decisions, it's like having six people at a poker table trying to figure out what to order for pizza, okay? Yeah. You add one person, and it takes you twice as long to make a decision. You add two people, it takes you four times as long to make a decision. We have you know, guys in the military, I give them a lot of credit. Afghanistan and I, Iraq were horrible deployments, e even though they did have McDonald's, which we didn't have in Vietnam, that's for damn sure. But uh, they, they were away from their home. It was dangerous. And uh, the cost of putting one soldier in Afghanistan for one year was a million bucks. Every empire collapses 
when they go to military adventures, happened to the Soviet Union, happened to the French, happened to the British, happened to the Spanish, and it's happening to the United States right now. And, and they're like a scorpion that's dying, and it's moving its little tail around, trying to sting everything in sight. And the fact of the matter is, the, the Ukraine war should have never taken place in the first place. They could end it tomorrow, and then all the United States and Europe has to do is figure out where to come up with a trillion dollars to rebuild a, a destroyed country. Let me ask you a question here that politicians don't seem to ever get uh, either answer or it's never they're never asked of this, at least. The U.S. has had a border crisis for decades. What type of aid and how many troops has Ukraine, and here's the key word here, ever deployed to our borders? Zero. Why is this never brought uh, to, to anyone's attention? That is, it seems so obvious to me that we've had a crisis. We've had no assistance from them, but it's a crisis now to us that they're having an issue. I just don't get it. Well, they're not having an issue. I mean, the United States was behind a lot. But you raised a point. You were a little bit incorrect. We have a border issue, but it was kind of okay under Trump. And as soon as Joe Biden took over, I, I mean, it's one of those things that I look at and say, I, I would love to meet somebody who's so stupid that they would try to explain to me why it's a good deal to bring in five million illegal immigrants, because that's just, duh, okay? It's not a Republican issue or a Democrat issue. It's, I, I mean, who ever heard of deliberately bringing in illegal immigrants? Do we have some shortage of labor that nobody mentioned about? And here's how sick it is. When you go to the airport, and you check in, and you go through TSA, what do they require you to do? Identification. Absolutely. And a ticket, okay? Mm -hmm. And take your shoes off. And you run through the silly machine and zapping you with uh, radioactivity. If you're an illegal immigrant, you don't have to abide by the same COVID requirements that American citizens do. And, and you wave this piece of paper that it's the document that says, you know, Juan Valdez has to show up in court three months from now. Now, the only value to that piece of paper is to get through TSA and to get on an airplane. But is Juan Valdez planning on showing up in court? Oh, absolutely. He's going to be there 100%. <laughs> really? I'm if joking. He's, I'm joking. First, <laughs> he is. He's going to be the first guy that ever showed up. Nobody else showed up. That's for damn sure. You know, to add on to that, the TSA has actually made the requirements even more stringent. I uh, have to have on my driver's license now a, a red star to confirm that I've been background checked and I'm not on the terrorist list. Really? That is correct. Yes, sir. Oh. And okay. unless I have a passport with me, then that will suffice. Uh, that is flying. Now, I'm referring to flying domestically within the United States. I have to have a red star on my driver's license in order for me to fly domestically. Uh, now, can you go down to a stationary store and buy a Red Star? Uh, I think you can. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're at peak stupidity. It's the end of empire, okay? These idiots are trying to justify their existence, and there is no limit to the stupidity that they're going to make people go through. And uh, some of this... In, in, let's see. The first time I made a flight was around 1955, 
and you you walked out to the airplane and you could meet people you walked in and when somebody got off the airplane you you could meet them right there until god i, I don't even know where it was it used to be a requirement a legal requirement that if you were carrying mail on an airplane the pilots were required to be armed and I, I don't know when it came in, but I've seen people carry guns and never batted an eyelash. It didn't make any difference to me. So what? I was in Texas. Everybody had guns. That's right. But uh, <laughs> they, they've gone so far overboard. E even the thing with pocket knives, that drives me nuts. I could go to Vietnam for 20 months. I could flew, fly over 800 missions. I could get shot at a thousand times. I just can't carry a two-inch pocket knife on an airplane because I can't be trusted. And quite bluntly, you know, I'd probably never get a red star because I'm probably on the terrorist list. Uh, well, based off of the comments you've been making here today, I wouldn't doubt that. <laughs> and, I, and I may lose mine for hosting you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to go back to something you said when we first started our conversation in reference to the West and the death the debt-based systems, that is, there seems to be some cracks that are leaking financially into the markets already this year from Credit Suisse to HSBC. Can you comment further for us? Okay. In 1966, the stock market peaked, and it crashed from 1966 into 1970. There was a rally, and then it crashed again into 1974. When interest rates go up, they hurt a lot of people that that you don't realize about. And the Penn Central Railroad, which was probably the biggest railroad in, in, in the United States, went bankrupt. And it was a giant surprise to everyone, and the market crashed. Uh, last year, the British highest-rated bonds lost 50... <coughs> excuse me, 52.3% at one point. And, of course, bonds are supposed to be safe. People buy them because they don't want to take risks. Uh, the interest rates are on the rise again, and the biggest percentage of the quadrillion or two quadrillion derivatives market is actually in interest rates. Something is going to blow up, and it's going to come as a complete surprise to everybody. I mean, frankly, I was really shocked to find Credit Suisse was that bad. And I think I talked already about uh, the the Swiss National Bank dumping shares like crazy. We are on the verge of a collapse. Nobody can predict when. This is something I've been predicting was coming for years, and it should have collapsed in 2018. I'm sorry, 2008. And by pouring money into the system, they managed to bail it out and gave it another 14 years of life. Something is going to blow up shortly. Um, it's going to be like the, the Austrian bank in 1931 called Credit. Uh, it collapsed and led into a cascading series of, of collapses of banks. Now, what are the two major assets of banks? Is it credit and debt? 
No. Whether they have the positive side of, the, of their balance sheet. I don't have my banking head on. Loans. Okay. They make a mortgage or car loan or credit card loan. The loan is an asset for them. And the other is bonds. And they want really safe bonds like British gilts. Okay. That just went down 52% last year. Uh, the, the banking system... Um, How do you know the toothbrush was invented in Arkansas? I've never even heard that question. Even I did not even know the origins of that. <laughs> okay. well, it's because it's called the toothbrush. If it had been invented anywhere else, it would have been called a teeth brush. <laughs> okay. But the, the, <laughs> so it should have been West Virginia as well, huh? <laughs> yeah, okay. so, uh, the incest in the banking system it's just absolutely remarkable, and it, it's going to be, you know, you pull that plug out, and, and, and the swamps can be drained literally overnight. Uh, Bill Holter, who I don't happen to agree with uh, very much, said it will take 72 hours for the banking system to collapse, and I think, if anything, he's probably an optimist. Wow, strong words there. You know, we've talked about problems. Let's talk about some solutions. What is one course of action that everyone listening to this interview can take to preserve their savings and wealth? Uh, do not get into debt of any kind whatsoever. Pay off all the debt that you can. Do not have any margin loans whatsoever. So once you margin a stock, you don't own it anymore, okay? The people you margin it to do. Uh, and do something to protect yourself. And given all of the things the Chinese and the Indians and the Russians have said over the last year, you have to be in resources. And, and quite bluntly, I, I don't think there's any question the Chinese are buying gold with both hands. Uh, central banks in general have bought more gold at any, any time going back to, I think, 1950. You need to do two things. One is you need to insure against financial chaos, and I know I've said this before, and physical gold and physical silver is an insurance policy against financial chaos. And if you don't see financial chaos on the horizon, okay, just wait for a week or two and it'll be on your front step. But uh, the other thing is, if you want to invest in profit, is to invest in resource stocks. And that would be resources across the board. The debt-based system has passed its sell-by date. This is like NATO. NATO was passed its sell-by date 31 years ago, and we should shut it down. It's not a force for good. It's a force for evil. If you don't believe that, go to Tripoli, Libya. You could buy a slave now. As, uh, NATO destroyed the richest country and the best-run country in Africa. If you want to, to protect your savings, you need to own physical metal that you can actually put your hands on. And if you want to invest for profit, you need to be in resources. And, and you know, what China and India and Brazil and Russia are doing is they're, they're making sure resources are the future, they're not the past. I, I can't 
can give you an accurate number for it, but manufacturing in the United States is something like 12% of the economy now, and shuffling pieces of paper is 35% of the economy. And it's like believing that you can have uh, an economy based on an Indian casino and a hair, hairdressing salon. And those are not... They're not viable. Of, no. Okay, they exist, but they're not an economy. If I'm listening to this interview for the first time and I have no exposure to the aforementioned physical metals and resource stocks, where should I begin? With the metals, physical metals first or the resource stocks? Absolutely the insurance policy first. The insurance policy is the most important part because, you know, I, I, I read 100 articles a day and I'd like to consider myself educated, but I don't know when it's going to crash. could be tomorrow for all I know. This credit Swiss, Swiss thing is really interesting because it's catastrophic. Uh, sooner or later, somebody's just going to flop over. Whether it's tomorrow, next week, or next month, I don't know. I just know it's coming. You cannot have $300 trillion in debt that cannot be paid. And everybody that passed Economics 101 knows the debt can never be paid. Now, if you're in debt so high that you can never pay it back, the technical term for that is you're bankrupt. And the West is totally, absolutely bankrupt. The whole World Economic Forum thing is about turning all of all the assets over to the banks, okay, and the one-tenth of one percent who control the wealth in the world, and the rest of us are going to be slaves. We're going to be those useless eaters they talk about. But uh, first of all, protect your future, and second of all, worry about investing. And, and quite bluntly, and it's not simple. You've got to do some research. But uh, let me give you something to think about. I've never heard anybody mention this, but it's important for listeners to understand. In 1928 and 1929, the, the wealthy of the world, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and Bernard Baruch and the Kennedys, knew a crash was coming, and they were prepared for it. But the average guy in the street, they had no clue whatsoever, and they had no way of finding out. So it was a total surprise to them. But now, with with the Internet, and hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people just like me, I'm not saying I came down the mountain with Moses. And I was carrying a, a big <laughs> thing of Okay. But you can read my books. I made them deliberately cheap so anybody can afford them. You have to think and you have to take some responsibility for your own financial decisions. Uh, do you happen to remember what the subtitle is of Nobody Knows Anything? Uh, it's in, in, in reference to gurus. Learn to ignore the experts, the gurus, and other fools. Now, that'll give you a real good idea of what I think about gurus and experts. Now, Bob, I have a chart before me that you and Dr. Quentin Henney devised some years ago that could fundamentally repair the monetary system. What are we looking at here? Actually, it's not repair it. It's axiomatic. You cannot have an honest economy without honest money. And most, very few people understand this. Quentin Henney and I have spent months together 
we are close friends. We talk on a constant basis. We, we've spent months traveling, looking at projects. And we discuss what the future financial system should look like. Now, the way the Russians and Chinese are talking about is having some kind of central bank digital currency that is, is tied to gold. Uh, they're going to tie it to gold rather than to resource stocks because going to gold is an easy decision. But quite bluntly, the, the country that started with the first central bank digital currency was China. And it's been a total failure over there. The central bank digital currencies are just simply not going to work because that's not the way people work. But uh, Quentin Henney and I designed both silver and gold coins that we would like to see produced and we would like to see the market determine what the value is. So instead of having U.S. dollars and British pounds and, and European euros and or Russian rubles, everybody should talk about gold and silver in terms of grams. The turnover, currency turnover daily in the world is $6.3 trillion. And if, if the friction, the difference between the bid and the ask is 1%, that's $63 billion a day. Uh, that just evaporates. And if everybody was on a gold standard and they could transact in gold, a, a Brazilian one gram gold coin or gold note would have exactly the same value as a one gram Russian or one gram Chinese or one gram American gold coin. I, I'd like to see somebody produce them. We've talked about producing these for years because I, I think it's the future. I think it's a good idea. We're going to go back to honest money because the alternative is, is too dreadful to consider. Now, based on the economic conditions that you've just conveyed, <clears throat> are you leaning more towards gold or are you sticking with the ratios? What's Bob buying? Silver. Uh, I, I think the ratio right now, let me look. Probably right around 80. I think it's a little bit higher. Uh, it's 83.65. Uh, there are people who say it should be 17 to 1. I don't believe that. But one thing that's very important for your listeners to understand is that in a gold system, the metal that you need the most of is, is not gold, it's silver. And why do you say that? Please expand on that for us. Well, because it's easy to carry. A one gram gold coin would be about 50 bucks, okay? And a one gram silver coin would buy you a pack of gum. Now, we have to talk about my favorite metal, platinum. Are you buying platinum? Yes. Great. <laughs> Great minds think alike. And, of course, I am also a buyer of silver, hang for on, the record. Hang on. That is not how it works. All right, sir. How's it work? Great minds run in the same gutter. That's right. <laughs> and, and who's I don't have a sense of humor? Sure you do. Sure you do. And just for anyone listening that has, you know, if you're buying precious metals and you want to have a conversation with me, give me a call at 855 
505-1900. I welcome the opportunity to speak with you. I'm a licensed representative to buy and sell physical precious metals through Miles Franklin Precious Metals Investments, the only company that is licensed and bonded. Now, we talked about resource stocks. Can you share three that have your attention and why? Uh, strange enough, I just did a webinar on Dolly Varden, and of course, it forced me to do a lot of research, so I'd have some idea. I could pretend I knew what I was talking about. And Dolly Varden has always been a silver mine, the original Dolly Varden mine from 1919 to 1921 was run by a guy named Herbert Hoover. Now, what was he famous for? Well, there's uh, there's two Hoovers, Her Herbert Hoovers. There's one that we know in the U.S. and then one in Canada. So one is known for mining, correct? That well, actually he's not known as well. The, the Dolly Varden mine. What was its next job? That I don't know. He was president of the United States. Interesting. So it's the same person. Yeah, exactly. And strange enough, very few people know this. I thought there were two separate individuals. Okay. Yeah. The classic book on mining from the medieval period was De Re Metallica. And De Re Metallica was written in, in both Italian and in Latin. Herbert Hoover and his wife translated it from Latin into English. And I have actually seen the book that they used to do the translations. And... Uh, a very wealthy guy in Perth, Australia, owns the book. And it's just really interesting. You could still buy Dave Ray Metallica because these books, I think it was printed in 1562 or something absurd like that. And there were hundreds of copies of the book still around because it's such a classic book on mining. And it was Herbert Hoover who translated the thing. And now we've got Joe Biden, and, and you know, he's best known for sniffing hair of little 12-year-old girls. What a difference in leadership. And by the way, I have a copy of the book in my hand as we speak of uh, Metallica. So it's interesting you reference that. But go back to Dolly Varden. What about the value proposition there that has you intrigued? Okay, uh, good question. I'm glad you did that. I got a little carried away. They just announced results. A year ago, exactly in February, they did a deal with Fury on a, God, I can't even remember the name of the project. Homestake. Homestake Ridge, okay. And they just announced drill results, and they had 46 grams of gold at some absurd number. You may have it. When you start talking about ounce and a half of gold, 1,500 grams of silver, which is 50 ounces of silver, or about 1250 bucks. okay, you have uh, one of the richest hits I've ever heard of. And, of course, it's right there on strike with what was the highest grade gold mine in Canada and the United States for years. It's truly remarkable, and Sean Kun Kun has just done an exceptional job with his leadership. Let me, let me read something to you. i got to find it. Find the map. Okay, it's in the Golden Triangle, and it's just south of Eskay Creek. There's so much mineralization up there in the Golden Triangle. It's a really interesting area because they've got everything up there. But 
if if you came to me and said 46 grams of gold, 1,500 grams of silver over 25 meters, I'd say that's Escape Creek. Mm -hmm. But before finding that hole at Escape Creek, they had drilled 108 holes total. Okay, so uh, they were not a one-hole wonder, and the the numbers coming out of, of uh, Dolly Varden and at Homestake Ridge are absolutely mind-bending. And here's what's beautiful: the stock. I can't give you the exact numbers, but uh, Hecla owns ten percent. Fury owns twenty-six percent. Uh, Sprott Resources owns 11%, and then I think something like 50% is owned by funds, and only 8% is in the float for retail investors. So, Dolly Varden, when you're in a correction like we are today, clearly, uh, you don't want to own the penny dreadfuls. You want to own the ones that are bonds, the ones that are money in the bank. And that's Snow Line, and that's Western Alaska Mining, and that's Core, and that's Pay Core, and, and the really solid, solid, solid companies. Because they're not going to go up tenfold, but they're not going to drop 90%. We're in a correction. I don't know how long it'll last. I'm not particularly concerned about it, but it's a good time to to be cashed up. Well, let's move on to uh, Fiji and visit Lion One Metals. Ah, it, it's obscene. There is an identical deposit 40 kilometers to the northeast that has mined... Nine million ounces, I, I think, from 1931 until now. And they've got two million or two and a half million still in a reserve. And uh, Lion One has exactly the same thing. And, and of course, it, it's going to take years to drill the thing out. But they're going to be in production by December of this year. And it's not going to be 500,000 ounces a year, but it's going to pay for their drilling and it's going to pay for the expansion of the project. Uh, Wally has made a lot of money for a lot of people in other companies. And Lion One is a brilliant company, brilliant deposit, and it's going to be very rewarding. It, it's so cheap, it's just obscene. I couldn't agree with you more there. And uh, let's go down to South Africa and visit Dime Core Mining. It's a diamond project, and if they accomplish what I believe they're going to accomplish, it should be very profitable. Diamonds is not something I'm an expert in at all. However, they're financed by the biggest diamond companies in the world, so it's not really a question. Uh, the resource business requires capital, and a lot of junior mining companies are screwed right now because they can't raise capital because capital is hard to make. Diamond Core has actually got an unlimited credit, and I think they'll be very successful. And I'm not a big fan of South Africa. You know, there are two strategic partners that you're referring to is De Beers and Tiffany. And Tiffany was just uh, bought out recently by Louis Vuitton. And here's another interesting aspect to it. We covered this last time. They've already put $100 million into 
the Crone and Dora Venetia project, and their market cap is sitting right around twenty million. That's the well, definition of a sale. Funny. The guy who's their strategic partner who owns Tiffany is the richest guy in the world. Oh, so there you have it. <laughs> and, and, you know, let's be candid. Okay, we're not children. We don't have to act like children. $100 million to De Beers and to, to that guy is chump change. Well, Bob, we've covered a lot of ground from geopolitics to investment opportunities. What is the one question that I forgot to ask today? You forgot to ask me about the goats. Oh, I remember the goats. What's the latest update on those? I found a picture. I'll have to find it and send it to you. Goats and trees. I, I thought it was so hilarious because I had, I, I kind of knew that there were goats and trees in Africa, but I had never seen a picture, and I found a picture of goats and trees. Okay. Well, send it to me. We'll try to get up uh, on this interview here. Mr. Moriarty, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Wishing you the absolute best, sir. Thank you. It's always fun. The information presented on Proven and Probable is provided for educational and informational purposes only, without any express or implied warranty of any kind, including warranties of accuracy, completeness, or fitness for any particular purpose. The information is not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice, or any other advice. You should not make any financial, investment, or trading decision based on any of the information presented without first undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional broker or competent financial advisor.